Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Welcome, everyone. I'm Suze McCormick. I chair the ESG and social enterprise and impact investing practices here at Morrison and Forrester. And it's really great to be here today. This is the third episode of our conversation series where we are partnering with BSR, Business for Social Responsibility, that if you don't know, is really the gold standard in sustainability and ESG and has been for 30 years. And this is the third episode of ESG Influencers, Leading Transformative Change. And this morning, we are honored to have Rose Kirk, who is a true thought leader in sustainability and ESG. Rose is the Chief Corporate Social Responsibility Officer at Verizon. And at Verizon, she's responsible for the company's CSR investment strategy and also programmatic build-out. She's a senior leader in the marketing organization and oversees all of the strategic direction for Verizon social impact activity. In addition to her market leading work at Verizon, Rose is a member of the board of directors of Casella Waste System and serves on the board of directors of the World Childhood Foundation. She's a member of the leadership board of the Women in Public Policy Program at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Executive Leadership Council and C200, which is a prominent global organization for women business leaders. She is also a fellow board member of mine at BSR. So today's discussion is going to focus on delivering an authentic approach to sustainability. And Rose, I believe, will be providing some insights on how she provides value-based leadership to address social needs in a way that enhances and leverages Verizon's business. So with that introduction, I'm pleased to turn it over to my friend and collaborator, Aaron Kramer, who is the president and CEO of BSR, who's going to be interviewing Rose. Aaron and Rose, take it away. Great. Thank you, Suze. And hi, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us today from what I'm happy to say is a slightly rainy California because we need the rain. So rain is bringing sunshine into my day today. Rose, thank you so much for joining us. And before we dive in, I want to say that people can submit questions, I believe, through the Q&A function in Zoom which presumably you have come to know and love over the last uh, couple of years. So be happy to take questions from the audience as we go. But to start, Rose, tell us just a little bit about your background. You've had a really interesting career. How did you come to the role that you are in now, Chief Corporate Responsibility Officer at Verizon? Yeah, so first of all, thank you. I'm so glad that you and Suze reached out, and it's wonderful to have this conversation, particularly with the organization that I think so highly of, and I appreciate all the leadership work that you do in this space. You know, about 10 years ago, I um, transitioned from a P&L accountability into the space, and it was really under a CEO at that time who has since retired from Verizon, and he wanted to turn this into, in his mind, a business unit. He didn't want us to be a, quote, foundation, which we are no longer. We've transitioned out of that space but he really wanted us to determine how can we align this with the business? And given the broad background that I had, he thought it made sense for me to do that. So I will tell you that I focused on just one very simple thing. How do I bring entrepreneurial leadership into the space and use the assets of Verizon to fundamentally make a difference in society? And so I felt like we were probably ahead of our time in the way that we were thinking about it and the things that we did. And I fell in love with it. 
and I've stayed in the space that I'm really happy that I have. Thanks, Rose. And we are seeing more companies put people with business backgrounds inside their companies into comparable roles. So you and Verizon were ahead of that trend. How has that helped you drive the agenda forward? Assume that some of it is the simple credibility that you bring in talking with the business since you've been in the business and you've been at Verizon for some time, but how does that background make a difference for you in the role that you're in now? I think it brings a discipline around authentic, measurable outcomes and that you actually put work into practice with an understanding of what you're trying to solve. And then I bring to it the discipline of Verizon. I hope other companies are doing the same thing in that we are very much a metric-driven company. We are an engineering company by nature. And so understanding what you're building, the cost structure associated with it, the impacts that you have, how you're driving costs out while you're scaling that impact is a very strong discipline that I think having that business mindset brings to what we do. It doesn't get in the way of solving the big problems. It doesn't get in the way of understanding what's happening in the category, but it does allow you to bring, I think, a level of respect and authenticity to the work because you understand your customer and you live and breathe with those customers. You visit those customers, but then you also understand the impact that you have to have inside and outside the company and you use the company's resources in a holistic way to actually have an impact. So you make the point about an engineering culture, which is really interesting. You know, at BSR, we have over 300 member companies, as you know, and Suze knows, and many other companies also have an engineering culture. And one of the things I've observed is that sometimes in companies with that background, they're really good at the quantifiable things, which you're alluding to, and they're not always as good at some of the more qualitative dimensions of sustainability. And if you think about ESNG, the S, sometimes it's quantifiable, often it's not. Sometimes it has to do with objective inputs and outputs, sometimes it doesn't. So in an engineering culture, how do you address that, given that not everything is a problem that can be solved through an engineering mindset? Yeah, I think it's important that you understand what your company has a right to solve. And I think that we exist in a space where sometimes people feel like their companies have to weigh in on every issue. They have to take on every issue. We knew that we had a right to solve the digital divide. That's what we do for a living. Those are the networks that we build. So when we started this work 10 years ago, it was first by looking at how can our technology be used in society to solve the digital divide? How do we think about the build out of our technology and the impact that we have on the environment? And what is our commitment there? And then how do we think about the opportunity with our technology to make sure that we are not displacing people and in the jobs that they are in as this technology continues to proliferate, to get stronger, to get even more impacting, it's gonna change the way that people are employed and what they do. So we started with this mindset of we can quantify what the digital divide looks like. We understand what it looks like in various industries and in various communities. Now, what do we do with the S to actually address that? And so we started building 
programmatic work that actually is quantifiable in education and healthcare, et cetera, that addresses that issue. That's great. And I do want to come back to the question about where do you have an authentic and validated role to play? Because I think every company at least should be thinking about that. Let me ask one more question about you before we come back in your background, because you and I have something in common. We each began our careers in journalism. And so I'm always curious when I encounter someone who's been a journalist, how does that mindset influence your work now? Does it? And if so, how? You know, it influences everything. I think it's probably influenced most of my career. I mean, as a journalist, you know that we were trained in the who, what, when, where, how, and why. And that every story had to answer that question. And so I take that same approach in the work that I do. Who are we trying to serve as? Why are we in this space? What is it that we bring to the table? How do we approach it? You know, I can follow the list. And I think by having that type of mindset, you're very deliberate in what you're building. And again, we build programs. We function almost like an NGO inside of Verizon. So you're very clear about what you're building, what are the outcomes, who are you going to partner with, how do you invite them into that partnership, what are you measuring short-term, mid-term, long-term, and then what do you need to continue to improve and evolve and do after action reviews on. So honestly, I am so grateful for my journalistic training because it really makes the work that I do today even more impacting. I think that's well said. An inquisitive, curious mindset is a great skill to have in, I think, in almost any circumstance. Set the stage a little bit. You mentioned digital divide already, but what are some of the thematic priorities for Verizon, just so we can use that as a basis for the discussion? Yeah, absolutely. So we call our plan Citizen Verizon, our plan for economic, environmental, and social advancement. And I think that term advancement is really important because we carved out that we actually wanted 10 years ago to begin to serve some of the most underserved individuals in society. And these are people who have every right to the same opportunities that most of us take for granted. And so we set that platform out and we focus on digital inclusion and we are in the two spaces there. We are in the education space. How do we change the way that teachers teach and students learn? We are in underserved middle schools and some high schools across the nation, over 500 or so of them now, in which we adopt those schools and provide them with a four-year technology-rich overhaul. And we can get into it later what that really means, because it's more than just giving them connectivity and giving them some devices. I can talk about what that feels like. We also have built an amazing portal and platform that can teach anyone around the world how to digitize their entire education curriculum. And then we're working with small businesses, recognizing that they are the backbone of our economy and that we needed to ensure that businesses that are owned by women and people of color have access to not only digital technology, but that they also understand how to make those businesses successful. So that's our digital inclusion work. In our climate work, we of course care about our footprint and we are doing a lot of work to make sure that we are managing the big footprint that we have, whether it's the networks that we build and electricity usage, or it's all of the fleet that we have on the streets. We care about that, we manage that. But conversely, my team is doing a lot of work on the other side of that, I would say, on climate justice and the fact that so many communities of color 
are fighting the fight. They're on the front lines of the issues of climate change in our nation and what it is doing to their communities across all dimensions of climate issues. But we think our technology is a solution there. So we do some work there. And then we recognize that for each generation of new technology that we introduce, 5G now as we are introducing it, that you are going to actually create such an incredible experience for individuals that the robots will become real and that they will be much more ever present in our lives, whether it's helping us with caregiving issues or helping us get all of our toothpaste packed out of that Amazon warehouse because you don't need the people to do it when you have the robots. We recognize that our technology is doing that, but that means that people are being displaced from jobs. So we're doing a lot of reskilling and upskilling in a column that we call human prosperity, which is designed to make sure that we're getting people ready to compete and have access to technological jobs. The final comment I would say is that what is central to all of that is that we have this layer called social innovation. And we think a lot about not only should we be doing this work for societal good, but if Verizon is really going to stand firm and stand as an authentic company in this space, then how do we also think about the revenue side of the house? So we are doing work that actually is driving societal good, but a part of it is also designed to make sure that we drive revenue because that's the best model that companies are actually thinking about societal issues holistically and not just off to the side. What's interesting in what you describe, and first of all, the point about revenue is the way to make sustainability sustainable. So that's crucial. The through line in talking about digital divide and talking about climate in talking about some of the technological innovations is in each case, you spoke very directly to the impact on people and particularly people who either come from underrepresented communities or people who are at risk of being displaced. I assume that's, a, that's not just a happy accident, but rather the product of deliberate thinking is a sort of red thread running throughout these activities. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because it is deliberate thinking. And we don't believe that people are underserved in terms of we're some great corporate savior that's showing up to save the day. We have a principle on my team that we designed with and not for. And so when you're doing that, you are in deep conversation in the community with leaders, with politicians, with the whole ecosystem to really understand what is the need. And then you collectively build together. That's why we actually build programs. When I talk about you know, the work that we're doing in education, I have a whole team of people who are experts in education. They came out of the classroom. They came out of administration. They were in schools that profile like the schools that we are caring for. So they understand every aspect of the pedagogy. They understand what it's like to be a teacher standing in that classroom. They understand what it's like to be a tech coach. And so when we build and create the types of programs that we do, like Verizon Innovative Learning, which we just celebrated 10 years of that program, we've reached over a million students, then there is a discipline around what we're doing because ultimately another through thread for us is we wanna move people into economic prosperity. And we believe that our asset network connectivity is a key component to enable that. Yeah, that all makes very good sense and design with and not for is a good mantra to follow. Let me come back inside the company you have a very supportive CEO. You came in to your role under the previous CEO. Your current CEO is very, very vocal and supportive. How important is that? And for companies 
who maybe don't have that because not every company does. Any advice on, you know, because in our work, we see there's some CEOs who are 100% bought in and in fact are trying to drive the agenda. There are others who are more neutral, but yeah. in their heads say, okay, this might be the smart thing to do. So neutral, but broadly supportive. And there are others who don't always see it, even here in 2022. And let's face it, CEOs' jobs are challenging. The bandwidth issues are important. So I'm sure you are well aware of all sorts of CEOs. What's your perspective based on your experience at Verizon, what you've seen perhaps with peers at other companies? Yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about there. I think the first thing that you have to do is really define what is it that your company can take on, can embrace that can extend its way through your organization and the priorities of a CEO. And I think very often we are in this space and everyone checks the box and says, I've got to do something for the environment. I know that, check the box, right? I've got my goals. I got my sustainability goal. I've got to do something for society. So check the box. That's what I do. And then the rest of it is a little bit of, I'll just catch whatever comes my way. I think a part of getting traction with any CEO, whether they are someone like Hans Vestberg, who understands the space, is passionate about it. We have a balanced scorecard. He reads out at every analyst meeting, every senior leader meeting. He reads out on our customers, our shareholders, our employees, and society. And so we've been able to embed it in. But if you don't have that type of leadership, what are the priorities of that CEO? And then do the work to figure out, is there a way that you can address one of those critical priorities? Is it that you've got to get into new markets? And if so, what is your work that you can do with your policy team, with your business units to help enable entry into a new market? Is it a certain kind of customer that you are losing that's turning out? What is it that you can do with your work that actually addresses that customer segment? So I think it's really spending the time to think through what is the connective tissue, but you got to network that really hard in your business. You got to build a good plan. You got to have a business case mindset around how to demonstrate the impact that you're doing. And then I use a very clear operations review within Verizon because I don't take for granted Hans's support, it could go away at any given minute, right? Because I still have to get funding for what I do. I still have to show outcomes. So I use an operations review support where we are very clear about our cost, our impact, our strategy. And I lay that out just like a business unit operations review. So it helps to give some credibility. So, you know, Erin, I don't know if I fully answered your question. There was a lot there. Please feel free to Pill it away and I can go down any other path you would like just to make sure that I can provide some helpful guidance as appropriate. I think it was an excellent answer. I think you laid it out very clearly. So no, thank you for that. And maybe pivot to that and see if you would say something similar with respect to boards. I saw, and here at BSR, we're seeing a lot more engagement with our members' boards of directors these days. There was a survey that came, I think, from PwC, if not one of their slash competitors last week, where 64% of directors, corporate directors surveyed said that climate change presented a substantial question for their business. I'm kind of surprised that it's not close to 100%, but nonetheless, 64. The interesting thing is the disparity, which comes from the next finding from the survey, which is only 26% of those directors surveyed 
felt that they have the tools and the knowledge to address climate change effectively on behalf of their businesses. And we've seen this anecdotally as well. This survey reinforces something that I think is ever clearer. And my question is, will that gap close as rapidly as we need it to? And But then the question I have for you is, what you said with respect to addressing CEOs, is that the same for boards or is it a little bit different? I think that's an interesting question. And I can answer it from two perspectives, right? One is from presenting to Verizon's board, but also from sitting on a corporate board, being an independent director of a board. So I think there's a couple of things happening. Certainly the work of the SEC is really causing a lot of concerns that people don't know what's coming. They feel like we're going to be in this space of very arduous reporting and readout and assessments, and they don't know what to make of that. So if you think about all the comments that the SEC received and what they're trying to work through, folks are concerned about just the governance amount of work that they're going to have to do, particularly if you get into scope three emissions and trying to figure out that entire supply chain. That's troubling. So people are beginning to recognize I don't have perhaps the expertise internal, the systems in place to actually manage that. So I think some of the concerns is coming from that. The opportunity though, is to really begin to think about our collective. Companies work very independent of each other. Convening organizations like BSR are important because you allow us to see a collective work to understand our collective issues. So a part of what we have to do is not lose sight of the opportunity to make sure that we are coming together as companies and really deciding to define our voice and our work and our governance models in this space so that it's not just handed to us as a compliance issue. So that's a significant opportunity that I think both companies and boards should be thinking about and should be asking that question. And that's the question I raised with the board that I sit in is, here is an organization, happened to be BSR, where we can get guidance and insight and perspective that can be very useful as we're navigating this. The other thing that I think boards have to do is pay attention to this ESG space and not see it as a check the box, really beginning to understand that they have a fiduciary accountability here because there is fiduciary impacts to a business when you think about their operations. And so making sure that you have committees on your board that actually oversee this and govern this, that you're getting regular readouts and regular reports, that you're able to look at the data, that you look at the targets that have been set, that you're auditing that information with the same discipline that you would do in terms of the annual report. So I think boards are beginning to understand that they've got to put more rigor in it. At Verizon, we've understood that for a really long time. Our board has on our board of directors individuals who are CEOs who are best in class, like the CEO of PayPal, who have understood the space for a really long time, and they've held us accountable for putting more discipline in what we do and making sure that we have third-party audits. So it's a business unit, Aaron, and companies have to think about this work as a business unit and with that same type of discipline and structure. Well, there's so much in your answer. I was nodding vigorously, both I think visibly and just in my own head, I think covered a lot of ground. I want to dig into a couple things. And yeah, the CEO of PayPal, Dan Shulman, has been very uh, vigorous voice on yes. uh, and so on. So I'm sure he is 
I know what he's like publicly. I can only imagine what he's like inside the boardroom. I'm sure equally vigorous, if not more so. And I think that's fantastic. You mentioned the SEC. Let's come back to that. So I had the opportunity on Friday, actually, with two or three peers to spend about 90 minutes in a Zoom with Gary Gensler, the chair of the SEC, to do dialogue about where they are with their rulemaking process, what they are seeing and hearing from business, and frankly, the serious legal challenges that they are expecting. And so they are trying hard to scope a rule that they think will survive the legal challenges, something Mm -hmm. that Suze is paying very close attention to also. One of the things, though, that we've heard from our members, which is really interesting, and I'd love to get your take on it, either in Verizon terms or what you're seeing more broadly. When I was at Climate Week, what I heard over and over and over again from your peers was that as the SEC rule is coming, and of course, you've got the European reporting directive, which is probably more ambitious. You have the International Sustainability Standards Board, which last week did put scope three emissions reporting in their model, not something the SEC has yet made a commitment to one way or the other. I'm not speaking out of turn from the call I had last week. That's all public. We are hearing, though, that corporate controllers and others from the finance function are now trying to shape sustainability strategies more and more, as is the general counsel, and sometimes, not universally, but sometimes with a risk-averse approach. So I guess my question to you is, as you're 100% right, these reporting and disclosure rules create significant compliance duties. That is undeniable. How can we ensure that doesn't create so much risk aversion? The way I think about it is, will these regulations raise the floor such that all companies are maybe doing more as a baseline? But might it also simultaneously reduce the ceiling as companies are more careful about what they say and what they commit to, given that, and I'm trained not only as a journalist, but also as a lawyer, the risk of shareholder lawsuits is non-trivial. So is that a conversation? I obviously don't want you to speak out of turn based on internal deliberations, but how should we think about that? Yeah, and so I'm not representing Verizon's voice in that. That's a fair ask to not do that. I think the issue, though, is a very real issue, right, that says if we're going to put such compliance issues on top of entities and hold them accountable in a way that we haven't allowed for the journey and the insights and the information gathering that needs to happen so that companies can make the right choices around what they do, it is business nature that you're probably going to see that. And so I think that the opportunity is for the SEC to think more broadly about what are we ultimately solving for, right? We're ultimately solving for a space where we are caring about this planet. Companies are very deliberate about the goals that they set. And they are being very authentic in what they can do and how they measure themselves and how they get to the right outcomes. And we've got to allow for some room of ambition because we only change things in society if there is ambition. And that's an important component that none of us would ever want to see tamped down. Well said. And you've used the word authenticity a few times today. I want to come back to that actually towards the end of the discussion. I think it's really important. Let me maybe shift a little bit. 
we are living through interesting times is one way to put it. There is a lot of economic volatility. There is very fierce political debate. We are facing massive generational change in American society and more broadly, there's geopolitical conflict. The energy system is in a major shift. I could go on. How do you, as a leader, how do you both keep Verizon's mindset wide open to all of these changes, but also you're not the government of the United States. So these are not all things that, they're all things that affect Verizon. They are not all things that are Verizon's to solve. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's an issue that everyone that I talk to grapples with, right? And there's such huge expectation that we do have a voice and we do try to solve and we do try to weigh in because there's several issues that are pressing up against us, right? First of all, when you ask individuals, who do they trust? If you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, they will say, I trust business more than I trust government. But the caveat is I trust my business more than other businesses, right? Right. And so, you know, 135,000 Verizon employees have a point of view about what they believe we should engage in and these massive issues that impact society. And if they had their druthers, we would be involved in all of them. We would weigh in on all of them. We would put money behind all of them, but we can't. So to something that I said earlier, which I think begins to answer your question, it's where do we have a right to weigh in? Is this core to the business, to the employees? And then do we have the right governance, policies and activities in place to ensure that whatever we say or do, we can hold ourselves accountable and ensure it's executed upon Because there's a lot of people with a lot of voices in the wind, but when you scratch the surface, Aaron, they're not following through on that. They're not doing what they say. And our motto is to do what we say. And so that's the other component. And then there are times when we're doing a massive amount of things, but we don't verbalize it. We don't believe that everything that we do necessarily has to be for public consumption. Sometimes it's really for that set of employees who are impacted by it. It can be policies and benefits and things that we already have in place that are there. We just want to make sure that our employees know it. So I think we have to really figure out where do we have a right to weigh in. But the other way that we stretch ourselves, though, is by asking ourselves, what can we partner in order to solve some of these other issues? And that's one of the things that, as you well know, my team and I have been looking at pretty aggressively at Verizon is, are there communities where we can come together with NGOs, with nonprofits, with other companies, and look at a community end-to-end across every single lever that is going to allow a community to be more sustainable? And can we create some partnerships and some long-term commitments that can actually have an impact. So we think about it in terms of partnership, but we also are very thoughtful about what are the issues we can take on because we want to have a real impact and not just sprinkle around a little bit of fairy dust everywhere because that won't ultimately resolve the issues that are out there. I know you've been a strong and clear voice about avoiding performative actions. So you mentioned the Edelman Trust Barometer. I think you framed it really well. 
yes, there's trust in business. There's also massive skepticism about yes. business. And so I don't know if there's more you'd want to say about that, but I know this is something that you are a strong and consistent advocate for. Yeah, listen, there is nothing you do that you're not going to be attacked for doing, right? And you have to go into it knowing that. But what are your guardrails against being attacked? Can you say that you are truly having an impact? Can you say that you are truly trying to change that issue? Can you demonstrate where you vote with your money as a company? Can you demonstrate the real live person, people, communities that you have touched? When you begin to do that, then you can withstand some of the attacks. I spend a good time in any week answering employees' letters around a mischaracterization of what they believe we're doing or misinformation. I spend time with employees who hate what I do and would suggest that we do it differently. I'm very comfortable having the conversation because A, I learn, B, that person learns. Together, we have an understanding of what we will or won't do. And hopefully we can walk away and shake hands, even if we disagree. And I think that's what's missing in our society is everyone's in their little you know, box with their little narrative without any respect for the ability to have a conversation and a dialogue in order to change and to move our society forward. That's why we're in such a very challenging situation because we quit talking to each other. And I'm very happy to have the conversation. It's funny you landed where you did with that comment, because as I was listening to the first part of it, I was thinking what you're describing in terms of what you do at Verizon is something that we do need quite a lot more of in the public square. And we're not exactly seeing that on display these days in our society. And I think we all do. So I'm really glad you made that point. This is at least indirectly related to next question I want to ask you, which is that companies' engagement in politics is under more scrutiny. Verizon issues a political engagement report twice a year. Why does the company do that? It's just transparency, right? Again, we're not uncomfortable with the conversations that have to be had. So that report allows you to understand our PAC contributions, our policy statements, et cetera, because again, we are very comfortable that the work that we're doing is transparent, it's open, it's available, it's thoughtful. And so by putting that report out twice a year, you who are investing in Verizon as our customers, as our partners, you get a sense of who we are. And we recognize that we are many things to many people. And it's important that individuals can see that. Great. Thank you for that. Just a reminder for everyone on the call that I'd be happy to take questions from you if you want to pop it into the Q&A in five minutes or so. I'll have a look at that and see what might be on your mind in addition to what's on my mind and Rose's. So let me go back to something you mentioned about the march of technology and you mentioned the increasing use of robots. It makes the public very nervous. People feel a strong sense of precarity, to use the term that's used quite a lot, that their own livelihoods are at risk and that has a whole range of personal, community, economic, social political consequences. And yet technology can deliver great benefits. So the sort of responsible use of technology, the social license to operate for certain technologies, mm -hmm. how does Verizon think about that? Yeah, first of all, it is about being responsible. 
it is about the partnerships that we build that are really looking at solutions that are going to help make companies more efficient, that's going to help move to quicker production, that's going to help solve for some of these issues that we talked about. But that's also why on the other side of it, we ask ourselves the question of who is going to be impacted. And mostly in our society, whenever there is a technological movement, we see people who are underemployed or undereducated are most often impacted first. We know that we have an obligation to help those individuals think about how they too can take advantage of this technology. So we do that a number of ways. First of all, we do upskilling and reskilling in which we are actually bringing in individuals. We are upskilling them, reskilling them, focusing on the jobs of now and the jobs of the future giving them the ability to learn entry-level technology jobs. And we are seeing those individuals who go through that program. We're going to rescale about half a million people. We're seeing them go through that program and we're seeing them get jobs because we have our own sort of soft quota around that job placement. And I will tell you at Verizon, we're hiring some of those individuals. We put 20 into our IT departments, et cetera. So we are walking the talk and recognizing that we don't want to be that company that actually provides that technological infusion, but then all of these unintended consequences happen. So we are doing that kind of work. That's why in our Verizon Innovative Learning Program, we do very similar work with getting our children ready for the jobs of the future. We build 5G labs in schools so that the teachers, the educators can use those labs across every single subject matter but also for entrepreneurship purposes. We're going to have more than 100 5G schools in the coming years so that they have access to the best technology and that young people grow up understanding how to apply that technology. You know, Erin, I always think about the fact that when the Model T was invented, the blacksmith lost his job. And I think about that blacksmith a lot, right? That all of us wanted the new technology. It was a car, it was moving quickly. The horses were slower. They required more human intervention, but there was a blacksmith on the end of it that somebody taught how to be a mechanic for the Model T. And that's really what we think about here in this space is the opportunity to actually make sure that as technology progresses, we're doing our part to help people take advantage of it. And yeah, that's it's responsible, a, yeah. Oh, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No, I was saying, and that's just a responsible thing to do. The analogy to the Model T is really interesting because it's easy to think that the issues that we're all dealing with in 2022 are unique to us. They're not. And They're not. We've seen this movie before. We've yes. been through transitions before. And if you go back to the Industrial Revolution and the shift to mechanized mobility and so on, it came along with a lot of social dislocation and economic dislocation. And so we really do need to learn from that and how we got it right in some cases. I think that is such a profound statement. And that's what we think a lot about at Verizon is we do have history and we need to let history guide us. You know, this fear of history, I do not understand. I'm a big believer that it helps to define why you are here. It gives you insights for what will happen as we move forward. It allows you to connect dots that when you are in the middle of it, you may not see. All the issues that people bring up, I remind them, are the same issues of unrest that we have dealt with before. We go through cycles and seasons in the life of this country and frankly in society 
with a lot of similar issues. So if we could calm ourselves down a little bit, then we could do the kind of work that is necessary to make sure that we are having long-term sustainable impact. And I think those of us who are in this space are in the driver's seat of so much of that. And don't be afraid of the power that you have to actually drive some fundamental change and introduce the right conversations at the various tables that we have access to. Yeah, there's an author, I forget who it was, who said, history is not in the past. In fact, it's not even history because we are living it. And that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the wholeness of that is crucial to understand if we're to make good decisions for the future. There's no doubt about that. What you just described that Verizon is doing, of course, is fantastic. And to assume that one company or indeed one sector or the private sector can solve all of this is just, it's not going to work. So do you also have an approach to collaboration on some of these questions in terms of technological innovation and the transitions that it brings? Yeah. So there's a couple of things, you know, one of the things that we try to do is look at where is the business of Verizon in terms of its partnerships and how do we take advantage of some of the partnerships that Verizon has in the work that we're doing, particularly when we look at our education portfolio. So, you know, we built our online portal, Verizon Innovative Learning HQ, which again is designed to really help individuals understand how they can create a very technical classroom. And we have partnerships with McGraw-Hill, who also has a partnership with Verizon and other spaces. We're doing, had deep conversations with Disney. We ended up not being able to create the partnership that we needed, but we had probably six months worth of dialogues with them about opportunities. So we look at Verizon's roster of partners, and then we think about it in terms of the work that we are doing against these big solutions that we can solve for, these opportunities or problems that we can solve for, and what solutions is it that we can create. We also have within our supply chain partners that we're working with on upskilling and reskilling, who are literally in line to hire some of these individuals that reskilled. So I think that ecosystem approach is really important. Companies have huge supply chains and being able to tap into those supply chains is an important part of, I think, being successful at what we're doing. Yeah. And I know from conversations that we've had with you that as you've looked at different geographies, that the ecosystem approach is the mindset that you've brought to it. Social questions, you know, your carbon footprint is your carbon footprint. That's a little bit, you know, the boundaries on that are a little more straightforward anyhow. Social questions, social determinants of outcomes for economic well-being, equity, et cetera. There's so many inputs to that, that the ecosystem approach is just is fundamentally important. It really is. And I'm frankly doing even more work in trying to figure that out. I was speaking to a gentleman, you know, actually he happens to be at Harvard a couple of weeks ago. He's doing some really good work in this space. And I want to tap into his insight. I was on a panel with someone last week who's doing some really interesting work there. He comes at it through a purely financial model. And so I really want us to get to a point where we can begin to model these outcomes and project long-term viability in some very interesting and unique ways. We're not there yet, but I intend to figure that out over the course of the next year or so. And that's the other thing, Erin, is that I'm always constantly working through what is our next big opportunity in this work that we do. I want my team to have this entrepreneurial leadership mindset 
that there are so many things that we can try and learn and get some best practices around. I don't want the team to be stuck, you know, that this is what we do, this is how we've done it. And so I pressure them a lot to sort of get that work up and running, get the learning, but what else ought you be thinking about? What else ought you be solving for? Because I think that's just a good leadership profile to constantly push everyone. Well, it is, and it's motivational as well for people who want to be creators and not managers. And yes. and we haven't talked much about generational change. I'm actually curious to hear your take on it. But my observation is we've got an incredibly ambitious and to some degree impatient rising generation who are coming into positions of influence. Do you see a difference in the 25-year-old who's coming to Verizon now versus what you might have seen 10 or 15 years ago? That's a good question. I think, first of all, they have had such good access to information and they still have access to information. And so they listen to validate you, not to believe you. (laughs) which is a very different type of thing, right? I mean, I grew up in a space where, hey, you just trusted what was said to you. You understood that this person was more seasoned. They had more experience. And so I listened to learn and to say, yep, that's right. I find that people are just listening to validate because they equally have access to a lot of information. They may not have had the lived experience. And so your responsibility is to try to figure out how to overlay your lived experience with information and with the insight that they have. And the person who keeps me honest around that is my 22 year old. He argues every point with me. I mean, he was arguing net neutrality with me when he was in high school. And I'm like, what do you know about net neutrality? He was like 16, but he had a point of view, right? From all his little gaming community. And so I find that I have to read a lot and think a lot and listen a lot in order to really keep up with this generation of really smart people who are connecting a lot of dots very quickly. Your 22-year-old sounds a lot like my 24 and 20-year-olds. Yeah. I mean, we had we did a compensation survey at BSR a few years ago, and we released it, and someone came in and said, actually, these are the right numbers. And my immediate reaction was possibly a little bit defensive, but in fact, <laughs> I realized, well, okay, I'm not sure there is an official version of much. So this person, as you say, had access to information. What the organization does is important, but it's not determinative necessarily. It's not. And I think that's what makes it so interesting. One thing that I'm curious about, because I'm in this space a lot, I wonder these days about the average age of the person who's in the role that I'm in and the average age of their teams, because that's an interesting analysis to think about That drives approach to work, that drives what you're focused on as you align your company. And so just beginning to make sure that there is some really interesting diversity of thought across the team is really important. You know, we talk about this values-based leadership. I have people on the team that it's been interesting to me watching their journey toward having the values, right? They were just great at getting work done. They were great program managers. And some of the coaching along the way has been, yeah, but you got to care a little bit about some of this. You got to put some passion into some of this. And I think that's an interesting thing because you have to take people, particularly to do this kind of work, you have to take them on a journey. And I think it's smart to have people on the team who may not have the same value set around it that I may have. 
And the reason I think that is important is because that CEO also may not have the same value set. And being able to tap into the thinking, the expertise, the approaches of people on my team at some point who were beginning to just get their sea legs around it was really helpful for me as I thought about the business case that I was trying to make throughout Verizon, because I had that person sitting on my team that I thought, this is interesting. So how do I get that learning and insight and think about what that means when I'm in front of this business leader or this person who may view it very differently? So some of that youth and some of that energy and some of that contrarian activity is actually a good thing to surround yourself with. I tend to embrace it and not run from it. So interesting. In some ways, it loops back to some of what you said at the beginning about training as a journalist, because journalists, good journalists go ask questions to get multiple perspectives on things to try to understand all of that. We can become complacent in our own assumptions. And I think the minute we do that, our usefulness, our creativity starts to diminish. So that the grit and the oyster is really important. And and diversity is important in all its forms. Diversity of of viewpoint sometimes gets overlooked. And it, it is something that's really essential. I mean, I have this experience every year at Climate Week when I go and come back thinking, well, that was a delightful family gathering of people who already agree with each other what about the rest of the world that just doesn't. And yes. Yes. We go out in the world to validate ourselves. So I totally understand that. Yes. Well, Rose, it's been as always such an enjoyable conversation for me. I so appreciate your perspective and the mix of your experience and your instigation is in it really valuable for Verizon. It makes you a valuable board member for BSR, and it's made you a very interesting dialogue partner here. So I want to thank you and You're welcome. thank the audience and then pass it back to Suze. And I was remiss in not thanking Morrison Forster at the outset for this great series. So yes. Suze, with thanks, let me pass it back to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was really great sort of overview. And I think particularly, Rose, hearing how you integrate it as a business unit. I am just mindful of having been in this space, not quite as long as Aaron, because he brought me in a little over 20 years. You know, this stuff, this all used to be viewed as the good stuff on the side or ESG. I've been thinking about it really arose because it was all of the social and environmental factors that weren't material operations and included in financials and otherwise. So they were on the side, gradually the recognition that some were material. And I love the fact that Verizon and you have taken kind of the good stuff on the side and made it a business unit and then integrated it strategically with all of the actions of the company, I think are just fabulous. Thank you. And thanks as always, Aaron. I actually learned a lot. So I think we will be having our fourth session in December. So please stay tuned and we look forward to seeing you all then. Thank you. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.